0: This morning we are in uh, Genesis chapter 19, so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up there. I'll just uh, give you a little bit of intro here. Um, on Sunday mornings in our church, we're studying through the book of Genesis. Now what we do most of the time here at Whitefields, for those of you who are new, is that we study through entire books of the Bible. And the reason we do that is because we want to get the whole message of that book, what God intended to speak to us through that thing, which is a whole, that book. We want to get that whole message. We want to get all of that communicated to us. So, um, you know, in the Old Testament, when we talk about Old Testament, you can't get a whole lot older than Genesis. This is as old school as old school gets. And, uh, but what we find as we study this book is this, that in every chapter we get glimpses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we also, the other thing is that in this very ancient, very ancient book, we find that it's extremely relevant to the days that we live in today, here and now, in the 21st century. Today we're faced with one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, but it's not one of those stories that, you know, topical preachers generally choose. Uh, We're going to talk today about the the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, because that's the next chapter in our study. So this is a well-known study, you know. It's a, well, it's a well-known section of Scripture, so well-known that it's worked its way into our popular vernacular in such words as sodomite, in such words as fire and brimstone, you know. These all come from this story, and they're, they're part of our um, common understanding and common language. This is a story... Uh, The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is one that brings up issues which are very polarizing in our society today, right? Namely, homosexuality and divine judgment. So we're going to ask God's Spirit to give us wisdom today and discernment so that rather than jumping to any conclusions, that we might rather hear the message of this chapter clearly and see the heart of God clearly so that above all things, we would have a biblical perspective. We would see God's heart on these issues that are dealt with in this chapter. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly, and we just come with open hands and open hearts. And Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us this morning. Uh, These are some difficult issues that we're going to be talking about. Lord, we know that there are issues which were hard for your heart as well. And Lord, we ask that you would give us so much wisdom. We ask that you give us insight into your word. We ask that you'd help us to see your heart and and your uh, desires and will clearly. And Lord, fill our hearts with compassion for other people. We pray that in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would help us to see people and feel towards people the way that you do. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us wisdom. We ask that you give us insight. We ask that you would anoint us to be hearers and receivers of your word, who don't only hear it, but who also then go out and put it into practice in our lives. So we pray that in Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen. So in Genesis 19, what we're doing here is we are essentially, we're picking up a story which is part of a bigger story, which is part of an even bigger story, which is part of the ultimate story. Okay? So we're picking up a story which began in chapter 18, which is part of a bigger story of the life of Abraham, which is part of an even bigger story, which is the story of the creation of the nation of Israel, which is part of the ultimate story, which is the story of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 18, at the beginning of the story, which we now continue, what we saw is that the Lord showed up, with two angels and he appeared to Abraham and he confirmed to Abraham his promise to give him a son and he said that this baby will be born one year from now he said okay start painting the baby room and start getting things ready we're putting it on the calendar baby's coming in one year's time Then the Lord, after he did that, he revealed to Abraham his plan to judge the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they were exceedingly wicked and completely unrepentant. But when Abraham heard that God was going to judge Sodom, he got a little bit worried. Because his nephew Lot and Lot's family were residents of Sodom. And Abraham pleaded with God that God would just spare the city of Sodom for the sake of the righteous people who lived there. And and God responded to Abraham and he said, Okay, I'll listen to you. And I will send my angels in to that city to go and check out the situation in Sodom and see what's up there. So that's where we are here in chapter 19 at the beginning. The Lord is outside of the city. And he sends his two angels in to check out the city and see what the situation is in Sodom. And, and the way that this chapter is laid out, for you note takers and you outliners, is this. It draws a picture for us of cause and effect. At the beginning of the chapter, we see a cause. And then it's followed later on in the chapter by an effect. So it looks like this. The first cause and effect is the cause is the wickedness of Sodom. And the effect is the judgment and destruction of Sodom. The next cause and effect scenario we see is the grace of God, and the effect is the justification and salvation of Lot. And the the final scenario is this. We see the cause, the worldliness of Lot, and the effect, the loss of Lot's, Lot's family and Lot's integrity. Okay, so let's get into it. The first one, the wickedness of Lot and the judgment and destruction of the city of, or I'm sorry, the wickedness of Sodom and the judgment and destruction of the city. I'll read from verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Okay, so what we see here is this happens. The angels go into Sodom to investigate the wickedness of the city. Lot recognizes that these guys are foreigners. He shows them respect. He shows them hospitality. He makes them a nice meal, orders a pizza. And it seems that he's totally unaware of the fact that they are angels. Right. Interestingly, along this very line, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says this to us who are Christians. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So let's continue on. It gets, uh, it's going to get a little worse. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof." But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge now. Now we will deal with him worse than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went up, or sorry, Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And we go down a little bit to verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley, and God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Here's what happens. These angels come, they're new in town, Lot sees them as new people in town, so he goes up to them and he offers them a place to stay. He says, hey, come stay at my house, I'll take care of you guys. But the angels tell him, they're like, nah, we're cool, the weather's nice outside, it's a wonderful evening, we're just going to sleep outside in the main square. And Lot's like, "Um, I don't know, I don't think that's such a good idea, guys. Uh, I don't think you really know what this town is like. He says, let me just put it this way, that when the sun goes down, you're going to want to be behind locked doors and barred windows. So take my word for it, guys. Just come and stay at my house. So... You know, Lot's been living in this town for a while now. He, he kind of knows what happens in this place after the sun goes down uh, in the dark, and he's trying to help these guys out and save them some trouble. So he finally talks them into it. They go to his house. He makes them a meal. And then after dinner, all the men of Sodom, they, uh, they finish their dinner quickly, and both young and old, they surround Lot's house. This is what we call a mob. Right? This, this is a mob of men outside of Lot's door, and they're knocking, you know? They're knocking on the door, and they're saying, Lot, we know that you have some guests. Please bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Well, that's kind of different now, isn't it? Um, what we're talking about here is not an easy thing to talk about. What we're talking about here is a, is a homosexual gang rape. And, uh, and, and some new guys are in town, and all the men of the town, except for Lot, from the oldest to the youngest, they come out to sexually assault these men, to gang-rape them. And, and it seems that, that this is what they did to all new people who came into their town, which is probably why when Lot saw that some new guys were in town, he went over there and he, he insisted, please, you guys got to stay at my house, because he knew what the men of the city were going to try to do to them. One of the most striking phrases in this story, which I believe gives us a lot of insight into the depraved culture of the city of Sodom, is this phrase, both young and old. Later on in the text, it says both small and great. Now think that through, because what it, what it tells us, what it means, is that there were old men, there were grandpas, there were uncles, there were middle-aged guys and dads, but there were also teenagers and even young children. This word young, it refers to any child who's older than a toddler, right? Now that kind of hits home because I have a five-year-old son, and, uh, and let me tell you that doing something like this, participating in an act like this, is something that would never cross his mind in a million years. But what we see in Sodom is that this was their practice. This was a a culture in which men sexually assaulted and molested other men. And and what we know about Sodom from the other passages in Scripture is that this wasn't a one-time thing. This wasn't the first time it happened, but this was their regular practice. And it had been going on for a long time. And everyone was involved in it, from the oldest to the youngest children. And so what we're dealing with here is not only rape, but we're dealing with a culture in which children were sexually molested and then became sexual predators themselves. I know this is a disturbing topic, um, and it is not my goal to be disturbing unnecessarily. But do know this, that the Lord looked upon this and he was disturbed to his heart. You think you're disturbed listening to this. The Lord was disturbed because he is the God who sees. He saw this happening and he was disturbed and grieved to his heart. The people that he had created, these people whom he had formed together in, his, in their mother's womb with loving kindness and tender care, here they are being sinned against in a grievous way. And here they are sinning against others in a grievous way. And you can begin to see the heart of the Lord when he begins to ask the question, How long? How long am I going to let this continue before I intervene and do something about it? You know, um, the statistics about sexual assault are, are astounding and they are shocking, they are disturbing. And the effects of sexual assault on a person are incredibly crushing. You know, for many people, this affects their entire life. For many people, this overshadows and ruins their entire life. And um, in the Lord Jesus, this is the promise of God's word, that in the Lord Jesus, there is healing and there is restoration for the soul. And there is hope in the Lord Jesus for healing and, and being able to overcome any offense that has taken place against you. But know that the Lord is the one who heals. He is the God who heals and he is the God who sees. And he is grieved to his heart when people whom he created and loved are sinned against. He is grieved to his heart when people whom he loved and created are sinners and offenders. And he is the judge of the whole earth. You know, there are a lot of people in our society, as you know, who find it uh, offensive to think of a God of judgment, right? They're opposed to the idea of a divine judgment. They want to believe in a God of love. They say, I can accept a God of love, but not a God who dispenses judgment upon sin. A lot of people see those two as polar opposites. Love and judgment, as if they're somehow opposed to each other. But what the Bible tells us is that these two, divine judgment and divine love, they are not at all opposed, but they are both attributes of the true and living God who is holy. And what holiness means, in part, what holiness means is that he is lacking nothing. He is completely whole, completely complete, with no lack at all. And ultimately, I want you to think about this and see this. That ultimately you cannot believe in a God who is all-powerful and all-loving, but not a judge of sin. It's impossible because this. If God is all-powerful, but yet he sits by and just watches or turns a blind eye while some people do terrible things to other people, while some people violate and victimize other people, and he does nothing, and he turns a blind eye, and he's just a big happy guy up in the sky, then that is not at all loving to the person who is the victim in the situation. That is not at all loving to the person who has suffered in the situation. It would not be loving of me if after church I walk out in the parking lot and I see someone being victimized or assaulted and I just pretend I don't see anything and walk the other way. It would not be loving of my children if I allowed someone to hurt them and I just sat there and watched and did nothing. You see, the thing that creates divine judgment What we see, we saw in the story of Noah, we see it here again. Well, the thing that creates divine judgment is human violence, violation, and sin. And God's nature is that he is holy. Again, what that means is that he is complete. He lacks nothing at all. He's loving and he is the judge of the whole earth. And what the Bible would say to the person who has been sinned against is that God is a God who sees. He sees everything. He sees everything that happens in secret. And he is the defender of the weak and the helpless. And he is the judge of the earth. And that sin which which someone has sinned against you, if you've ever been violated or sinned against, know this, that it will be dealt with. It will be accounted for. It will not be ignored. It will not be swept under the carpet. It will be rightly and fairly dealt with. And that is why you and I are able to forgive a person who has sinned against us. Because the true and righteous judge of the earth will make sure that that sin is paid for. And you don't have to be that judge. You don't have to make sure that happens. You can place it in his hands. You don't have to seek vengeance. You can know that the Lord will rightly deal with offense. And you can trust in that. So you're free. It frees you up to be able to put that in. Thing that has happened to you that has been an offense against you, you're able to put that in his hands and you're able to move on with your life rather than letting that thing control you and keep you in bondage and just overshadow and hang over your life and hold you back from moving forward. So thus, when when you forgive someone, you're not just saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. I heard one one. Bible teacher, he said this, that if, if you're able to just forgive someone with a mere act of the will, then that means that that person hasn't truly offended you. That person hasn't truly touched your treasure. But, he, but this is the point, that, that in Christ you are able to forgive someone. Because you're, a, you're not just saying, oh, it doesn't matter, oh, whatever. What you're saying is, I know that the God who sees everything saw that. And that he is the righteous judge of the earth and I trust him to take care of it. And that is why it's so significant that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Because some people would ask, well if God is God, right, he can just do whatever he wants, well then why wouldn't God just say, okay... Everybody's forgiven. Everybody gets amnesty. He'd save himself a trip to earth. He'd save himself a lot of humiliation and punishment and pain. Why couldn't he just do that? Why did we need this whole cross thing? And the answer is this, because sin must be accounted for. It must be paid for and it must be judged. And the judgment that Jesus took upon himself, it was much more than just the physical suffering which lasted for a number of hours. It was spiritual in nature. He took upon himself the whole wrath of God against sin, the physical and the spiritual judgment for sin. And that's why on the cross, Jesus is crying out in anguish saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the judgment of God for the sins of mankind was cast upon him. He was the only one who could bear it who could handle the weight of the sin of the world. And it is in this way, because of the cross, that God, when God says to a person, you are forgiven, there's a ton that stands behind that. What stands behind that statement is that the sin that that person has committed has been dealt with rightly and justly and fully on the cross of Calvary in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's switch gears here a little bit. Now, what was the sin of Sodom? You know, people tend to think of the sin of Sodom in terms of homosexuality. And all they see here is God uh, sending fire and brimstone on a city of homosexuals. Others have said, well, it isn't necessarily homosexuality that's the problem here. It's sexual assault and rape. They would say, God doesn't have a problem with homosexuality as long as it's consensual and monogamous. Now now here's this. Think about this. The book of Jude also addresses the sin of Sodom. And this is what Jude says about Sodom. It says this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which indulged indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve in his example uh, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So what that tells us, it kind of clarifies for us what the sin of Sodom is. It was sexual immorality in general and homosexual sin in particular. Now 2 Peter 2 verse 10, I believe, gives us even more insight into the hearts of the men of Sodom. It says this, that those who indulge indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority. Now I think that despising authority is really what I want to point out here. It really gives us important insight into not only what was the sin of Sodom in particular, but what was their underlying attitude. And this is what it was. It was a disregard for God's authority. And that's exactly what we saw. We talked about this last week in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord himself describes the sin of Sodom as pride, selfishness, and a haughty spirit. Now, pride, selfishness, and a haughty spirit were the underlying reason why the residents of Sodom lived the way they did and committed sin with no concern at all for what God had to say about it. And what that means on a practical level is this. God has made it clear in his word that his design for sex, now he's the one who created it, he made it up, so he gets to tell us what his design is, is that it is for one man and one woman, within the bonds of marriage. And what that means is that all sex outside of those parameters in the Bible is called sin, and it's also called sexual perversion because it's a perversion of God's good and original intention. It perverts God's good intention for sex and marriage and takes something that was designed to be intimate and beautiful— and makes it raunchy and dirty, that is a perversion. And I'm not just talking about homosexual sex, I'm talking about any sex that is outside of the parameters which God gives in his word. One man and one woman in the bonds of marriage. So the deal with the people of Sodom is that they blatantly told God that they did not care at all what he said or thought, and they're just going to do whatever they want. On a practical level, you could say this too, that that means that the guy who's sleeping with his girlfriend and not marrying her, with no regard at all for the authority of God, no concern for what God says about sex and marriage, is no less of a sinner than a homosexual person who's doing the same thing. The person who's cheating on their spouse heterosexually is no less of a sinner than the person who cheats on their spouse homosexually. In our story, the the men of Sodom, they ask Lot, give us your visitors so we can rape them. But what does Lot do? He does this crazy thing, right? He says, well, I won't give you those guys, but here's my two virgin daughters. Go ahead and take them. And he literally says, do with them whatever you'd like. Is heterosexual rape somehow better than homosexual rape? No, that's the point. They're both wicked. They're both sin, right? So that's the point here that I'm trying to make. Homosexuality is a sin. But it is one of many forms of sexual immorality, which are sins, right? That are listed in the Bible. It's not the ultimate sin. It is not even an unforgivable sin. But it is a sin. Now, furthermore, when we talk about homosexuality, and I will say this, it is my opinion that The homosexual issue, this is the hot-button issue in the church and in society today, and it will continue to be for many years to come. So it's important that we as Christians um, deal with this topic. Uh, When we talk about homosexuality, one important thing is that we make a distinction between the orientation and the practice, because there's a difference between being a practicing homosexual and a person with homosexual tendency. You know, it's the practice that the Bible says is a sin, not the orientation. So just like a person who, who is heterosexual and not married, a person can have urges and desires of, of many kinds, but God's word tells us to use self-control rather than giving in to those desires. And, and furthermore, God promises to give the power of the Holy Spirit to all those who struggle with temptation so that they'll be able to overcome and fulfill the calling of God on their life to live a holy life for God's glory and for the good of themselves and others around them. You know, it isn't a sin to be tempted to sin. What is a sin is to give in to that temptation. You know, sometimes, and I think oftentimes actually, you hear homosexuals say that as long as they can remember, they've been attracted to the same sex. Well, I, I wouldn't argue with that at all. I would, I would assume that that's true. Um, and some would even say then, in the next uh, step, they take it another step further and say, well, if, well, then why did God make me this way if he would then forbid me to follow through on those desires? And the answer is this, that the fault does not lie with God, but rather with human sinfulness, right? Every fallen child of Adam has sinful tendencies, Some of us have weaknesses in one area. Some of us have weaknesses in another. Some of us are drawn to one type of sin. Some of us are drawn to another. We don't get to choose what we're going to be tempted with. But we do need to respect the fact that God is God. And if we want to be in his house, we have to play by his rules. So the the other pertinent question for us as Christians is this. As Christians, what should our attitude be towards homosexuals? You know, I read a quote from a well-known pastor. He was speaking on this subject, and he said this, which I I really agree with what he said. He said, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, then that means that you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone means to agree with everything they say or believe or do. Uh, Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions in order to be compassionate. I completely agree with that. So again, homosexuals and homosexuality are two different things. Because homosexuals are people. Human beings created in the image of God. Homosexuality is a practice. So as Christians, you know that God has called us to love people. God is the judge of the earth. And that means that it's God's job to deal with sin and judge people, not ours. And that knowledge should free us up to love people, even people who are different than us. And Jesus was an amazing example of what that looks like. You know, Jesus was able to have an opinion and share the gospel with people and point them to God and tell them to repent of their sin and that God would would forgive them and receive them. But he was able to do it in such a loving way that these people were continually drawn to him. So as Christians we we should love homosexuals as people created in the image of God who are sinners just like we are but that doesn't mean that we can affirm the practice or lifestyle uh, of homosexuality biblically and of course we seek to point all people to Jesus. You know Paul the apostle says this in 1 Corinthians verse uh, chapter 9. He says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" He says Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You know, people, people say, Why does the Bible pick on homosexuals? Well, the Bible doesn't pick on homosexuals. The Bible picks on everybody. And some of them happen to be homosexuals. Some of them happen to be sexually immoral in other ways. Some of them happen to be drunkards. Some of them happen to be idolaters. Some of them are greedy. That's in the same list. The point is this. All of us have a thing, right? We all have a thing. Whatever. This is the message of the gospel, that whatever your thing is, you need to... Lay it at Jesus' feet and repent of it. You know, the point of this verse, what Paul's saying here is this, that people who commit sin and are unrepentant will not inherit the kingdom of God. The judgment of, of Sodom is a foreshadowing of that. Just as the men of Sodom laughed at the news of God's judgment and the offer of salvation, there are those who scoff at the idea of God's judgment and the offer of repentance and salvation. There are people who are, those are the people who are swept away in the judgment. But whatever your thing is, whatever my thing is, if we will repent of our sin and come to Christ, then God will work in our lives, and he'll put his spirit inside of you, and he'll change you, and he will wash you, and he will sanctify you, and he will justify you. And that's the gospel, that whatever your thing is, If you will come to Christ and lay it at his feet, then he will give you a new life. And he'll make you into a new person, a new creation with new desires. And he will give you the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome any and all temptation that you face. And not only that, he will declare you to be righteous and give you eternal life. And that brings us to our second cause and effect here. And that is this, the grace of God and the salvation of Lot. Let's read verses 15 and 16. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. They brought him out and set him outside of the city. You know, Lot couldn't sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. His song was more like, I decided to follow Jesus, but then I kind of hesitated, so then he dragged me out of the city by my collar, you know? Uh, one One of the great mysteries in the Bible is that Lot is referred to as a righteous person. This is a big mystery for any of you who read this text. The New Testament refers to Lot as a righteous man. This story even talks about Lot as a righteous person. That's the reason why he was saved from the judgment and destruction of Sodom. And that's extremely intriguing to me. How could this guy be considered righteous? Look at his lifestyle. Look at his behavior. I mean, here's a guy who purposefully moved into the city of Sodom. Hey, where should I move? Hmm, I could move to the suburbs, or I could move to Sodom. I'll do that, and I'll raise my family there. And not only that, he when these guys come, the rapist guys, he refers to them as his brothers and his friends. Nice friends, right? These are the guys who he hangs out with. And then he says, "'No, please don't rape these men because they're under my protection. But here's my daughters. Are they not under your protection? Lot, what kind of crazy thing are you doing?' Here's a guy, and then at the end of the chapter, he gets so drunk on two occasions that he loses consciousness and loses recollection of anything and everything that happened to him while he was out. And this is the man whom the Bible calls righteous. Now, how in the world can that be? Now, here's the point. Lot was a wicked man. But he was accounted righteous because of his faith in the promises of God and the word of God. And here's the deal. You are a wicked person. I am a wicked person. But the gospel is this, that God loves and saves wicked people. Not because they deserve it, but in spite of the fact that they don't deserve it. That's called grace. And grace can't be earned, it can't be deserved, it can only be received. And God's grace is received by faith in his promises and his word. And his promise and his word to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we see with Lot, that God saves wicked people. Maybe you say, Nick, are you calling me a wicked person? Yes, I'm calling myself a wicked person, but I'm also telling you this, that God loves you. And he came to earth and died for you, and he said there's no greater love in the whole world than the love that he feels towards you. The message of the gospel is this, that you and I are more wicked than we even know, but we are more loved than we could have ever dreamed. And what we see in the story, that's what we see in the story of the the destruction of Sodom and the salvation of Lot. The people of Sodom were wicked. Lot was also wicked, but Lot was saved because he was declared righteous through faith in the word of God and the promises of God. All people are wicked, but some people are saved by grace through faith in the gospel. You know, the Bible tells us that the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment that's to come on the last day when God will judge the living and the dead. And so this story, it needs to serve as a warning to people that God does indeed judge sin, and that the day is coming when he will judge all people for sin. But it also serves as a beacon of hope, that like Lot, who was far from perfect... That you too, and me too, who are also far from perfect, we can be saved from judgment and declared righteous by God's grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Lot is not a person to model your life after. Most of us would even be able to say that, that most of the people we know who are totally godless, they're at least more moral and ethical than Lot was. They don't get wasted every night. They don't have gang rapists as friends. They they don't offer their daughters over to crazy mobs. But Lot's salvation is meant to be exactly that. It's meant to be a beacon of hope for wicked people and a surprising and even extreme example of God's grace that a guy even like Lot, as imperfect as Lot, could be declared righteous and saved from the judgment to come by faith in the gospel. And that brings us to our third cause and effect. And that is this, the worldliness of Lot was the cause, and the effect was the loss of his family, his integrity, and his witness. Let's go ahead and read what happens next. We'll go down to verse 30. Now Lot went up to Zoar, out of Zoar, and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. And come, let us make our father drink wine, and he will, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son, named his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Well, this is a crazy story, right? Um, Here's the deal. Lot may have been righteous in the Lord's eyes by virtue of his faith, but he was an extremely worldly person. And someone might ask, Nick, you know, with all this talk about grace and justification, if Lot's an example of how you can live a worldly life and still be saved, well, isn't that just encouraging people to live a totally carnal life and just do the minimum of putting their faith in the gospel? Well, let me tell you, that is certainly not what this story would encourage anyone to do. Because you have to look here and you have to see that Lot was saved, but his carnal, worldly lifestyle led to him losing just about everything he had. His family, his integrity, and his witness. He lost his family, his wife and his daughters. His, his wife was lost in the judgment, and his daughters, although they were saved with him, they were maybe even more carnal than he was. They get their dad drunk, they commit incest in order to get pregnant. And before they they even left Sodom, they were even engaged to Sodomite men who scoffed and laughed at God. And not only God, but they scoffed and laughed at at the girl's dad. Lot lost his integrity. He lost his witness. When Lot spoke to the men of Sodom and told them not to do the wicked thing they wanted to do, they laughed at him and they said, Who are you that you're going to tell us what's ethical? and what's right. Who are you to start being the judge of us? Lot had compromised ethically, and and his words no longer carried any force. When he told people about God, they laughed at him. The point is this, you can be a carnal Christian and still be saved, but why would you want to be? Because you ruin your life. Look at the consequences that Lot paid for being a carnal believer. He was saved, but his, lo- his wife was lost in the judgment, and his daughters didn't walk with the Lord. He was saved, but he was a joke. People laughed at him. He had no integrity, no witness. The last thing that anyone should aspire to be is a carnal Christian like Lot. A guy who's saved by the skin of his teeth, but who ends up living in a cave, raising his kids, who are also his grandkids. Later, he ends up not only, his grandkids, not only do they not walk with the Lord, but they become enemies of the people of the Lord. That's not something to aspire to. Uh, Let me tell you this, Lot didn't just wake up one day as a carnal Christian living in Sodom. Lot's path to worldliness was a long, slow path with many turning points along the way. And there were many times and many ways in which he could have avoided ending up in the place where he did. First of all, Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom if you remember back a few chapters. Soon after that, Lot moved into the city of Sodom. And not only that, but he became a leader in the city of Sodom. That's what it means when it says that he was in the gate of the city. That's where the politicians and the prominent people of town would sit. In contrast to Abraham, we do not read that Lot ever built an altar. We never read that Lot called upon the name of the Lord. In fact, when the Lord did tell Lot to get out of Sodom, he lingered. And the angels had to drag him out of the city by his collar. These were steps in Lot's journey into worldly living, into carnal living. He could have changed the course of things any number of times along the way, but he kept moving closer and closer to Sodom until he was in the middle of it, until he had to be dragged out by God's angels. Even though he was saved, he lost everything. One of my good friends in Hungary, um, one of my best friends actually, he reminds me of Lot in, in a lot of ways. He's a believer, but he's just gone down this path, this very long, slow path into this worldly lifestyle. He's still a believer. He loves Jesus. He's saved. But like Lot, he's going to lose more than he even realizes if he continues to live the way that he is. You know, he's already lost some things. He's lost, uh, he used to be in ministry but he's no longer in ministry. He had to step out. And my prayer for for my friend, whom I love with my whole heart, is that he would turn back before he loses even more than he already has. And my prayer for you who are here today is this, that you would heed the warning and the story of Lot's worldliness. The loss, see the loss that he suffered because of it. And my prayer for you is this, that you would not settle for just being saved but that you, would, you wouldn't settle for just barely getting by and surviving spiritually, but that you would take a hold of all that God wants to give you through a relationship with Jesus Christ and that you would thrive in your life as you walk with him. You know, God's desire for our lives is that we would not only be saved— but that we would walk with him, that we would know the joy of the Spirit and the knowledge of him, and that we would even be tools in his hands for his mission in the world. Not that we would just barely survive, that we would just barely be saved by the skin of our teeth and just have to deal with the terrible consequences of carnal decisions. God wants you not only to survive, God wants you to thrive for your good and for his glory. So following this idea of cause and effect, let me just finish by saying this. Let us be those who sow not to the flesh, but who sow to the spirit, knowing that the one who sows to the flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will reap from the spirit eternal life. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you give us to get through and work through these difficult issues in your word, and and not just in in your word, but in reality, in the world that we live in. Lord, help us to be people who not only see what is right and correct, but Lord, people who have compassion. Lord, help us to be people like you who love and bless people who are different than us. Lord, help us to be hospitable people. Help us to be loving people. Help us to be compassionate people. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would pour out your love into our hearts, that it would overflow from us like a cup that's just overflowing. Lord, we ask that you do that today. And we ask that as we go out into the world, as we leave this place and go out into your mission field, Lord, that you would anoint us to be ambassadors of you. And we pray, Lord, that you would Do all that and work amongst us and continue the work you've begun in us to completion in Jesus' name, amen.